One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to On Brand with Alf and me, Rory Sutherland. Every month, I'll be talking to household names as well as challenger brands about success, challenges, and future opportunities in the advertising, marketing, and media industries. And today, I'm joined by Finn Legout, co-founder of, you'll know it, Pasta Evangelists, a company that delivers fresh pasta recipe boxes right across the UK. In 2018, two years after its launch, Pasta Evangelists appeared on Dragon's Den, but surprisingly failed to secure an investor. However, they subsequently went on to raise £5.2 million of investment through other channels. And in January 2021, Barilla, the world's biggest pasta company, acquired a majority stake in Pasta Evangelists, and their revenue doubled in the following year. Having proved the dragons wrong, not for the first time, I might add, I'm delighted to welcome Finn to the podcast. So, Finn, tell us a little bit about what Pasta Evangelists does, what the original kind of impetus was behind starting it, and um, what drove you to choose this particular foodstuff and this particular means of delivery uh, when you founded the company? Hello, Rory. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Happy to be here talking about Pastor Evangelist. We didn't um, raise the investment with the dragons, as you pointed out, but we, we are tremendously passionate about pasta. Pasta has got to be one of the most loved foods on planet Earth but also perhaps one of the least innovated foods. So if you look back through centuries of Italian history, pasta has always been an artisanal, craft-led product. If you think of the Italian grandmother, the iconic nonna, sitting on the back streets of Puglia making orecchiette by hands, this is the pasta that I know, this is the pasta that I love. But all too often... People associate pasta as a staple product, a commodity, something that's bought for a very, very small cost in the supermarket, but has been industrially made and that people fill themselves up on. Well, we see a world of pasta that can be altogether more interesting, more aspirational and more gastronomy led. So it's been our mission to try and uplift the entire category of pasta with something that's better, more artisanal. Uh, better for you, made with good ingredients and natural, uh, and that's and that's been our impetus for pasta. And a small part of it, I know it sounds sort of slightly trivial, was also you could produce it in a form that went through a letterbox. Is that right? Obviating the normal the normal delivery problem. Well, well, quite right. So the initial concept when we launched the business was pasta in the post, whereby you could receive a, a box through the letterbox, which would contain freshly made pasta, one of our sauces. So you would get, for instance, a bag of um, pappardelle, and you would get a sauce such as uh, wild boar ague, 
The idea being that the customer could simply boil the fresh pasta two, three minutes maximum, heat up a sauce, combine, and have a restaurant start, restaurant quarter pasta experience at home. Um, so that was that was how we started the business. It's changed a lot. Um, we don't deliver as much pasta nowadays through letterboxes, but I uh, can confirm we do still deliver through some letterboxes. So what's your main channel of distribution at the moment? Some of it is retail now, is that right? Some of it's retail. Retail is a small part of the business. The majority channel now is takeaway. So we have a, a large um, business with delivery, Uber Eats, Just Eat. But we've also recently launched our own proprietary takeaway service at pastorevanus.com where you could come roar in order again, wild boar ragu, except this time it's not going to come through your letterbox. And better still, you don't need to do anything because it'll come to your door ready-made by chefs in your local Pastrofanus kitchen and you can just dive straight into the, the hot dish. Uh, it's de- it's it's obviously de- all you simply have to do is reheat and combine effectively. Is that right? So for the, for the traditional recipe kit, yes, you would just you would you cook the pasta yourself, warm up the sauce. But now we have a takeaway service where you can order, you know, just like you would order an Indian or a Chinese or a pizza, and it arrives hot and ready to eat. That is now the the mainstay of the business. And so it's a dark kitchen business effectively. So we have some dark kitchens. We also have some customer facing units. It's a mix. The the ambition for 2023 is to move to more customer-facing units and slowly phase out our dark kitchens. The way I like to see it, Rory, is I imagine our dark kitchens as monopoly houses. We want to upgrade them to mansions. Got it. And ultimately, you, you'd therefore be a complete multi-channel business in that you'd offer direct takeaway, local delivery, or even consumption on the premises. Is that right? That's right. I mean, you, you know, we like to refer to ourselves as channel agnostic in the sense that although pasta is a democratic product and everybody eats pasta, different generations, different people, different consumers have preferences about where they want to purchase and how they want to purchase. So for some customers, it might be, you know, adding pasta evangelist products to their Ocado shop. For others, it might be coming to one of our events and learning how to make pasta. For others, you know, when you're hungover on a Saturday lying on the sofa, you know, the idea of getting up and, and even making a recipe kit is too, is too involved. So in that moment, a takeaway is perfect. So we're trying to cater for every occasion and consumer in that sense. What, what were the dragon's fundamental objections to your business plan? Because they've certainly been proved wrong. Funnily enough, um, the other case I can remember the dragons with the possible exception of uh, Mr. Ballantyne, um, they failed to invest in Hungry House, I think, in the early days, and it ended up uh-huh, being sold uh-huh. to Just Eat for $220 million. Um, uh, Yes. Th- they, they seem to have a little bit of a kind of uh, a record of failure on um, uh, food innovation. Um, and it always struck me as interesting, by the way, it's worth noting that um, when you... When when Hungry House, which was a kind of precursor of Just Eat, uh, presented to them, they got into a huge argument between the dragons about whether people would effectively order delivery food on the internet. Uh-huh. And they failed to ask the fundamental question, which struck me as the obvious one, which is, when people do this, do they do it again? In other words, is this a sticky behavior with you know a high repeat purchase yes. rate? Because if you've got a high repeat purchase rate, you can afford to wait because you know that actually 
you know, um, ultimately people become converts fairly rapidly and therefore the speed at which you're growing your customer base is not quite so critical because once a customer, always a customer, you've got a kind That's of right. a growth through accretion. And did you spot the same thing very rapidly? Because I, I, it always struck me as a fundamental failure of the dragons not to ask that question. When people order a delivery through Hungry House, do they then go on to do it four or five times or once a month? Because if they do, you're onto something. If they don't, you're not onto something. And you found pretty quickly with the original letterbox model that um, uh, that it was sticky. Is that right? I think no, to be completely honest. I oh. think recipe kits um, have a fundamental problem, which is a lack of stickiness. I think in the, in the industry, oh. a lot of people would say DTC, subscriptions, recipe kits have a retention problem. I think this is because, you know, you essentially have to invest heavily in trial, getting people to try a recipe kit. Uh, if people have never had one before, you know, so let's give them 50% off, 60% off. And people, by definition, who are trialing a product with such a energetic discount are more interested perhaps in the discount or the introductory offer than the product itself. So that doesn't lend itself to organic retention and, and a sticky customer. So that, that we, have a, we have a very, very loyal customer base, a long-term customer base in our recipe kits, our subscribers who are sticky but we did see a far too high percentage of consumers only having one box. So taking up a trial, having a box and not returning, which is why we, have, we have moved, moved our business towards takeaway because, you know, takeaway, takeaway pasta can be a regular occurrence in a person's life. You could have it for lunch at your desk. You could have it for dinner. It suits families. It suits singletons. It can be a special occasion. You can have a, you know, lobster, uh, tortelloni with um, tarragon butter, or if you're really hung, you know, hung over on the sofa, you can have a big sloppy bowl of mac and cheese. You know, there's there's something for every yes. moment. So that does lend itself to stickiness. And our numbers and data show that the takeaway customer is more likely to stick around uh, and exhibit repeat purchasing habits than the recipe kit customer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you're undoubtedly right. I suppose the existence of dry pasta kind of in many ways did a disservice to pasta as a dish didn't it that actually the fact that it could be a long shelf life convenience food essentially meant that it was kind of devalued in most people's perception i think that's that's a really good question i would say actually i think long conservation sources have done more damage because if you think ah. if you think about the italian culture in pasta you know it's it, it would be wrong to say fresh pasta is better than dry. They're just two different products. And fresh pasta is associated with the north of Italy, Emilia Romagna, for example, in particular. You know, the city of Bologna, which gave birth to Tagliatelle, or Modena, which is where Tortellini are from. These are cultures historically that were wealthy, could afford eggs, for instance, and therefore fresh ah. pasta held. Whereas in the south of Italy, you know, pasta without eggs for historical wealth reasons was made so it's just two different cultures but i think the unifying uh, approach that's taken in italy is whatever the pasta is served with i.e the sauce or the filling is always freshly made you know fresh seasonal products so in my opinion jars of pesto that are kept in the in the cupboard for you know potentially years that are made with conservation ingredients preservatives and so on 
that's where the product, that's where the problem begins. Ah, interesting. Because every now and then I'll get involved in an argument, which is which is better, yeah. French or Italian food. Well, I always argue in favor of Italian food on the basis you, that Rory. it's scalable. Yes. And my argument for that is that French food will do you a fairly magnificent banquet, but it doesn't have a snack food culture to the same extent. The glory of Italian food is that it actually covers the waterfront, which is everything between taking a bit of bread and putting chopped tomato on it uh, in a way that bizarrely tastes absolutely magnificent, all the way up to, you know, suckling pig and lobster. But it, 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 it covers the whole gamut of of food from I want a blowout to I want a snack. And I think French food, by and large, fails to do that. It seems to have sort of basically have an aristocratic tradition. Well, I have a sense. I'm, I'm, I'm inevitably a little bit uh, biased on this debate, but clearly I agree with you, Roy. I think, and I think you summed it up in a sentence there, which is Italian food, you know, it can be about tomatoes on bread, but what you are assured of is if that tomatoes and bread is going to be nice, it's because the Italians have been um, anxious to ensure they use the very best tomatoes and the very best bread. You know, Italian food culture is all about simplicity, but the best ingredients. So I often refer to a classic caprese salad of mozzarella, tomatoes, fresh basil, and olive oil. There's four ingredients and perhaps salt if you want to add it. But you need each of those ingredients to be excellent. There's nowhere to hide. The preparation is not elaborate in the way that it is in the French kitchen, where there's, you know, multitude of ingredients, complexity. You know, it's it's an amazing food culture. But my approach to life is relaxed. It's convivial, and I like to bring bring people around the table with with that attitude, and you know, avoid pretentiousness and ostentatious preparation, and just have fun and enjoy food rather than trying to be showy with it what's the gluten-free position because there, there seems to be a, you know obviously there's been an explosion of the last two years of people probably deludedly claiming that they're gluten intolerant um i mean th- obviously there is a medical condition of course uh, uh, where you are um, you're celiac, celiac think, absolutely where you are genuinely extremely intolerant to gluten but um this seems to have taken sort of a sort of widespread belief where more and more people claim that they at least try and avoid gluten. Can you produce fresh pasta um, uh, fairly easily in a gluten-free form? And do you find that a major part of your business? It's certainly not a major part of the business. Um, it has historically represented about three to four percent of sales. So it, 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 ah. it is a, it is a modest um, is a modest share. You can make reasonably good gluten-free fresh pasta. You basically use ingredients like rice flour, tapioca starch, xanthan gum, etc. Um, I'll be completely honest in saying it isn't as good as pasta made with wheat, but that's no. the nature of the beast. Pasta, fresh pasta, is is made with wheat. Um, it's am I right in saying it's Durham wheat? What, like, what is Durham wheat? Because I've always I've always read about it yes. in conjunction with pasta and not known how it's different from. So I couldn't res- resist seizing this opportunity no. to find out what it is. Sure. So I'll manage expectations. I'm certainly not a scientist, but essentially there are two flours um, that you use to make fresh pasta. One is um, farina do- doppio zero, aka double zero flour, which you often see 
you know, being used to make pasta, to make pizzas. And this is an extremely, extremely finely, um, a fine flour. And that, that's the traditional flour you would use to make, say, fresh tagliatelle. You would use 100 grams of doppio zero flour to one large egg. And that is one portion. It's very simple to remember. The other type of pasta, this is traditionally used to make dry pasta, is indeed the durum wheat um, flour, what the Italians call it, semola, semola di grano duro. Ah, yes. And that's, that's a very, um, it's, a, it's a very, I, I can't, I mean, you would say in Italian duro, it's a very hard flour, so it's very robust. Um, and that's why when you eat fresh pasta that's doppio zero made with egg, it has this sort of light, um, ambrosial quality to it, whereas, you know, if you eat, you know, if you eat durum wheat pasta, it's more substantial, it's more robust, it's, which is why, of course, it takes, you know, nine minutes to cook some dry pasta because it's made with a completely different flour. Got it. Whereas the fresh pasta is, is literally really just a question of heating, is it? Well, it's, it's you know, very, very short cooking. I mean, some shapes, the smallest fresh pasta shapes you would cook really for a minute, perhaps even less. Some of the thicker shapes, so if I made, for instance, fresh pakkeri, which is a is a Neapolitan pasta, you know, that's going to take four, perhaps even five minutes because it's quite thick. But ne- but certain fresh pasta is never going to take 12, 13 minutes to cook in the way that some dry pastas would. Do you, do you see um, a slight reversion to conventional eating? Have you had a little bit of a hit since the pandemic ended? Obviously, the, uh, the pandemic was a great time for invention and inventiveness in terms of food delivery and provision um, with, and by the way, hastened uh, all sorts of things like, for example, you know, McDonald's moving into delivery and so on. Um, have you seen a, a slight reversion or are you seeing actually the interest in food that was undoubtedly kindled during the pandemic and a slightly more experimental mode of varying everything from kind of home delivery kits where you cook from scratch all the way to restaurant meals that simply require reheating. Have you seen that behavior be, you know, reasonably sticky? So I I think when the pandemic hit in, you know, March 2020, I remember I was sitting in a flat in Peckham on my own and no one wanted to leave the house. And if you were leaving the house, it was to go to the supermarket. And of course, the supermarket shelves were stripped of a few key things, if we remember, it was toilet roll, rice, yeah. eggs, strangely, but also pasta. Now, we had this phenomenon that occurred almost overnight where people didn't want to leave their houses and they couldn't find pasta. We were a pasta home delivery service. So in terms of, you know, serendipity for our business or the, the pandemic was awful, it, you know, it, we couldn't have been better placed from a commercial point of view. So we saw an explosion of uh, business overnight. You know, the business, uh, we we increased sales four or five-fold within a week. So that was a massive operational challenge. It was difficult. But it occurred to me, you know, even that you can, you can, you can become, um, you know, a little bit... I think a lot of people just assume the business has grown four or five times and this is going to stick. But why would it? We were on emergency footing. It was in a crisis. So there was no delusion or illusion for me that, you know, a lot of the business we were getting then was not going to be sticky because people, once that crisis ended, would return to different habits. So I was already thinking, you know, what happens after this pandemic when, you know, people go back to work and so on. 
so we 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 were already trying to flex our business in different um into different revenue streams including takeaway and after the pandemic you know the, the recipe kit bubble did burst um that was to be expected it was never going to remain you know huge and i think also psychologically for people a lot of people consumed recipe kits during sad moments, moments when they were stuck at home, where they had no other choice. And therefore, there was somehow an association between getting a recipe kit and sitting feeling, you know, depressed in your home when you couldn't go out. So post-pandemic, other parts of our business have grown exponentially. Recipe kits is, is a lot slower. I mean, I, I have to say, I thought the investor community was bizarrely unkind to Netflix mm-hmm. in that it punished Netflix for losing net subscribers after the pandemic ended. And I did feel like saying, look, as an investor, you know, you had conditions where people were effectively confined to their homes, desperate for sources of entertainment. Yes. Okay. You couldn't. I mean, you couldn't have legislated a more favourable environment towards Netflix subscriptions <laughs> than that. And yet, for some reason, it came with these people were shocked when some people cancelled their Netflix subscriptions. When the, and it, it struck me that genuinely the investor community can't really be thinking very much about human behaviour if that's how they actually respond to a sort of a slight falling off in subscriptions. It would have struck me that any intelligent investor would have seen that as inevitable. Well, quite. So, I mean, I mean, it was such a it was such a weird time. I remember, you know, with our old um, investors before we sold the business, saying to me in in April 2020, "What's going to happen after the pandemic? You know, what is your plan for after the pandemic?" We were literally working 18, 19 hours a day, packing boxes, getting orders out to customers at a time when the business had scaled you know, four or five times overnight. We weren't sitting there with a the mystic ball with all the answers, you know, and what, to what ifs and so on. So I remember sitting, making a plan about a world that I, I didn't even know what it would look like. It, it was all very bizarre. No, and what, I mean, one thing that is undoubtedly interesting is that um, this channel agnostic approach, from my behavioral science angle, I've always thought that, there is a tendency in businesses to think of different channels as merely cannibalizing each other, Uh okay? And um, I've always thought this is fundamentally wrong-headed. I think, you know, if you look at a McDonald's drive-thru window, Uh and let's ask the question, if that drive-thru did not exist, how many of those people sitting in their cars would have actually parked up and gone into McDonald's? Now, some of them would have done. I'm I'm not disputing the fact that there is a degree of kind of revenue abstraction, there's a degree of cannibalization. But I think it's always much less than people anticipate because we make decisions within a context. And what determines our decision is a context. It's not that we want pasta there and then we decide what's the easiest way to acquire it. You know, we want to take away meal, we want to collect a meal, and then we decide, you know, and so the actual channel in which something is sold has a much, much greater effect, I think, on whether people buy or not than is conventionally envisaged. And so I think your channel agnostic approach, where you basically, as I said, cover all bases. Um, You have dark kitchens. You want to upgrade your dark kitchens. I suppose there is an advantage to a dark kitchen that you don't have to pay for fancy real estate. You can be in an industrial estate somewhere. So there is that advantage. It's always struck me as a bit weird that pizza delivery firms 
do so little to incentivize collection, sure. given that the delivery is a very large part of the cost. That's always struck me as slightly odd. You know, I would have thought if you're running, and they occasionally have an offer for collection, but I would have thought that actually incentivizing collection and encouraging people to order ahead of time and then collect on their way home should be a slightly bigger part of things. As far as your expansion goes geographically, are you mainly large cities at the moment, or are you planning to go into uh, uh, you know, smaller places or even towns? So it depends on which channel in our business. So recipe kits are available uh, all over the UK. Nationwide, you know, of course. Aberystwyth, yeah. Abergavenny, all the way up to Aberdeen, um, Brighton, Bolton, whatever whatever we can say. Also the Channel Islands, Isle of Man, etc. That's that part of the business. Our takeaway business, as you point out, is is dependent on local kitchens, dark kitchens, and in some places, customer-facing units. Of those, we have about 40. So we're covering Greater London almost in its entirety. We are in Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, Leeds, Nottingham, Oxford, Cambridge, with many more cities launching soon. But I think what was interesting there, Rory, was your point about why why... Why do people, why do takeaway businesses not invest getting punters to walk in and pick up the food? Because it mitigates, you know, the rider fee, which is, of course, the big cost to these businesses. This is something that's on my desk right now because we are working on a very, very exciting customer takeaway um, concept where, you know, my priority is that customers want to come and pick up their takeaway. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I've ordered a Domino's or a Papa John's, you know, I, I confess I will have them if I'm feeling a bit worse for wear. I think the last time I walked into a Domino's shop was probably in about 1999 in Newcastle with my mum. I haven't been back since. And why do you not go into those premises? Well, they're sterile. It's awkward. There's no music. There's nowhere to sit. It's not a nice experience to go and pick up your pizza. So you have it delivered. And I, what I'm saying is, can we be ambitious with what a takeaway unit looks like and create a space where people ah. love to be there, enjoy going to pick up their pasta, you know, whether it's Italian music playing, maybe it's a Italian broadsheet newspaper that you can sit down and read. These little touches of magic that make people feel at home. And of course, that's what Italy is all about. So that's what we're doing. So I think, you know, watch this space. Hopefully you're going to see some really beautiful takeaway units cropping up across uk cities uh, over the next year the other the other thing worthy of exploration was also i think the food truck uh, um and the reason the reason i've always noticed that is we have in our village um, a wood-fired pizza van that turns up every monday and the thing i noticed is my children were probably and me to some extent but my children were probably more loyal customers of that food truck than if there had been a pizza restaurant at the end of the drive. Yeah. And the reason was, when it was Monday and they saw the pizza truck, they realised last chance for wood-fired pizza for another seven days. And it does strike me that there may be a way in which you can serve slightly less densely populated areas by just, you know, by doing it on wheels. I mean, it, which would be an interesting thing. We could. I mean, I, I don't know what the pizza venue um, mentioned, which business belongs to, but I think these things are quite operationally challenging and demanding. Um, we used to do we used to do events going to and from different localities, you know, whether to your town or you know up to Brighton for the day, and literally taking over cafes and turning them into a pasta school for one day. But you know, maybe it's because I'm getting a little bit older and my energy is decreasing. But 
physically going to and from in this itinerant approach I found quite difficult. We now have a, for example, a, a fixed pastor school in Farringdon in London where we don't have to, you know, after every event, clear up and move to the next place. And honestly, Rory, it's pure bliss. Being in one place, staying still, It's maybe it's a little bit less magical uh, because you're not turning up once a week, but it, it is a lot easier. When the Dragons rejected investment, what was their principal objection? So I think they all had different objections. I mean, Deborah Meadens from Recollection was... She she never invested anything there, does she, really? <laughs> Perhaps not. She, I think she said to us it was because the idea wasn't proprietary. We didn't have IP um, around the product, but it was essentially replicable. And what I was trying to point, you know, this was over five years ago when it was filmed, but and I was 24, but I back what I said in the moment, yeah. which was, you know, we might not have IP, we might not have developed, you know, bespoke technology, but I know it's pasta, but doing what we're doing is harder than it looks. You know, whether it's dealing with the, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the of our podcast, you know, pasta in the post. There's a lot that goes into pasta in the post from maintaining a cold chain. The food needs to be kept below eight degrees. Now, if we post something through your letterbox at 9 a.m. in the morning and you're not going to get home until 6 p.m. after work, that pasta needs to be maintained under eight degrees. That requires very, very bespoke packaging insulation, etc. Equally, getting it there in the first place, keeping it cold, getting it there on time requires a logistics chain. Um, so even just in that one part of the business, there's a lot of complexity. Getting the recipes right in a way that works for British consumers is, is complex. We've got a technology part of our business, lots of different channels, lots of different people in different places. So I, I, you know, I take her point um, that it's, the idea is replicable, but the execution is actually difficult. Also, you're, you're discounting their first mover advantage and simple brand fame, that you have an advantage in terms of just awareness Quite. in being first, yeah. as well as all the other advantages of being first. I'd also say that someone who set out to copy what you were doing would more sensibly choose a different foodstuff. Rather than trying to replicate pasta, you could take another food which is underrated and deserves to be heroed. You know, you might go to, I don't know, Korean bibimbap or whatever, okay? Or, you know, but you, or soup, you know, you, you know, in other words, you, if you wanted to actually go, let's jump on that bandwagon, you wouldn't choose the same food stuff, I think. Tell, tell me your connection with Italy, because you obviously speak fluent Italian. I'm judging that by your accent. When you pronounce, I'm, I'm very flat. Are I'm, you Italian? I, I'm not Italian. I'm a Geordie. I'm from Newcastle. But what's what I re- ah. what I really love? My co-founder Italian, uh, my co-founder Alessandro, as you can tell by his name, is Italian. Yeah, but he's Italian. you know yeah. he's very pale. He has big blue eyes. So whenever people you know encounter us, they say, "Oh, Finn, obviously you're the Italian one," and he gets so riled up about this. But I and I love it. I love people thinking <laughs> that I'm Italian. It's such a compliment. But no, I, I, I love Italy. I have a major passion for Italy. So I have a passion for the rest of the world. I, you know, you mentioned uh, bibimbap, the Korean dish before. I love exploring this planet. I've just gotten back from South Korea where I ate lots and lots of bibimbap, gochujang, KFC, Korean fried chicken. But so for me, it started with Italy. You know, I was going to Italy a lot as a child. We have so many friends there. I speak some Italian. It's certainly not fluent. But I, I, I'm always just touched by the warmth of Italians and the passion that they have for life and especially for food. It's one of the best 
just it is probably the best thing in life eating food and Italians no matter where where you meet an Italian whether it's in Sicily in the south or in Trentino in the north they will be passionate about food they will want to show you food they will want to talk to you about food from their region and this just runs so much deeper than it does here in the UK and I, I love that I know and actually what's amazing about it too is the absence of bad in that what I <laughs> what I was absolutely captivated by when I went to Italy was that uh obviously you could get spectacularly good coffee yes that wasn't a surprise mm-hmm. okay but the coffee was spectacularly good at a motorway service station always you know the fact that the, the fact that there isn't any kind of you know normally we're used to that kind of compromise yeah, right. but actually you know there are certain things where the standard is maintained absolutely across the board that's that's fantastic well, i think well that's it one of no. my one of my colleagues roberta aka chef roberta who's our head pasta chef I traveled with her a lot all over the world, but especially in Italy. And if there's one word in Italian that always makes me laugh that Italians will use, it's the word schifoso. It's almost onomatopoeic. It it means it's somewhere between dirty, disgusting, and altogether just not very nice. When Italians encounter, you know, a lackluster cup of coffee, for example, yeah. they have this magical way of turning up their nose and saying, Ma che schifoso. That's just not, it's disgusting, you know. But then the funny thing about Italians is that they turn their nose up and they grimace, but then the grimace gives way to a little giggle. They they are serious about food, but they also understand that it is just food. And they have this, you know, self-deprecating giggle, but they know it's not the most important thing in life, but it's but it's still something to get passionate about. Uh, it is, uh, as a culture, it's absolutely magical, isn't it? I mean, it is, within minutes of arriving, it's impossible to dislike the place. Absolutely, which are very, very few other places have that Quite. to the same extent. Australia is the only other one I know where it tends to have the same, you know, basically, you know, once you arrive, you are basically smitten. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've been to Australia as well. It's it's just a warm place. I really like warm people and a warm approach to life yeah. because life is short. Why live it in an anxious, cold, standoffish way? And Italians are the opposite. They, You know, you mentioned coffee um, and you know, uh, when you're driving on the motorway in Italy and you can stop. And even there in the little roadside coffee shops where you get your petrol, yes. they have espresso bars. And you see Italians yep. standing there taking a moment with their coffee, with a cafe or macchiato, uh, and just drinking it peacefully and then going back about their lives. And I love that sort of languorous approach where, you know, life is complex, but food doesn't have to be and, and just take it easy. I suppose Australia is similar also in the food scene in being consistently incredibly yes. good. Partly, again, they've got access to unbelievable ingredients, yes. haven't they? Yes. Um, the, the most tragic um, uh, thing, I found myself buying from Natura on a car uh-huh. four tomatoes that must have cost about 70 pence <laughs> each. And then coming to the conclusion that this was entirely worth it because the, the awful kind of polytunnel creation of tomatoes... It uh, has rendered, you know, has rendered the food completely worthless. I mean, you know, it's an absolutely pointless experience. And the difference between a really, really well-grown tomato is if there's one thing where you get what you pay for, that seems to be it. Well, that's completely true. And I think the other thing that upsets me about tomatoes is tomatoes are a seasonal product. Tomatoes are a summer product. They are traditionally available in summer. So the idea of, you know, a punnet or a pot of tomatoes 
in January, it's not something I would ever buy. And, you know, I understand that everyone's different. If you want to have a good, you know, again, a caprese salad, you're not going to make it in January. Good tomatoes don't exist in January because it's not warm in January. The sun isn't out in January. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Top 2 Challenges, brought to you by Alf Insight. Alf Insight helps media owners, agencies, and marketing service providers improve their new business pipelines by equipping them with in-depth insights, accurate information, and daily news updates on the leading and challenger brands in the UK. Alf also helps sports clubs, venues, and charities with new partnership deals. Alf Insight identifies the brands to target at the right time, providing everything you need to tailor the perfect pitch. Visit Alfinsight, that's ALFinsight.com, or click the link in the episode description to find out more. We have this regular podcast feature, which we call Two Challenges, Top Two yeah, Challenges. So one of them is, if you like, specific to you, Pastor Evangelist. The other one is for the D2C food industry in general. So what do you see that as the principal challenge now facing Pastor Evangelists in terms of where you go next? Okay. And then we'll go on to ask, you know, where do we see the D2C food industry kind of panning out? Because rather like the delivery industry, you know, if you take Deliveroo, if you take Just Eat, et cetera, Uber Eats, et cetera, the delivery industry is patently going to suffer a shakeout at some point because, awkward to say, but it's kind of either a natural monopoly or duopoly, probably. Um, so first of all, Pastor Evangelist, we're, where next? What's the big challenge? What keeps you awake at night? I think, you know, I'm a son of a restaurateur. I, you know, I, my dad opened a fine dining restaurant in 1992 in Newcastle, which sounds a bit strange and maybe it was a bit premature, but I've grown up in a family in, in a, in a, by the way, Newcastle is a great food city. It is now. a great food city. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Having said that, Newcastle is also sprawling with mediocrity and, you know, my dad's an independent restaurateur and he's always focused on doing amazing food in, in interesting concepts, physically an interesting space and restaurant and so on. And I do not want Pastor Evangelist to become the next 
Lazaguanas or Bella Italia. I'm absolutely determined that Pastor Evangelist remains so full, focuses on quality, on excellence. You know, we were just talking about seasonal products. I want us to remain seasonal, the best ingredients, the most interesting dishes. I don't want the brand to lose its focus on excellence just so that it can serve or address a wider and wider market. That's not me. It's not what I stand for. And I think as the business gets bigger and bigger, it's quite easy for um, for for you to want to you know do a race to the bottom that makes things easier and cheaper. And and that's the biggest challenge when you you know the business grows, you have more people. How do you keep everyone in that mindset of you know quality is the most important thing? and have everyone working with um, a genuine love of gastronomy in mind every day, all day, on behalf of our customers. So that's, that's the biggest one for Pastor, uh, for Pastor Evangelist. And therefore, I suppose that becomes slightly harder, you know, when, when you don't have majority control, do you have pressures always to grow, always to cut costs, always to expand? Uh, does that, does that, is that something that concerns you? Because obviously... As an independent business, you can plough your own furrow entirely in terms of the pace at which you wish to grow is is yours to choose. For example, so so I think I think some businesses absolutely have that pressure from from their owner, basically. But with Barilla, and I can say this with hand on heart, Barilla, you know, I think one of the reasons Barilla actually wanted to partner with Pasture Managers to acquire the business was because we are focusing on premiumness and quality. And raising, yeah. raise, trying to raise pasta as an entire category, which considering Barilla is the world's biggest pasta group, is is hopefully a, a, an interesting ambition for them. So they've completely backed uh, Nora, actually the biggest supporter of us, focusing on quality, excellence, ratings, uh, amazing gastronomy, rather than a detractor or trying to push us in the other direction. I think the challenge is simply that you know, this is a founder-led business. Myself, uh, Alessandro and Chris all have food backgrounds. We are all very, very into food. And when when there was just three of us starting the business, it's very easy to control every single detail. But now as the business is, you know, 350 employees at Pastor Evangelist, we can't be there all the time with our, you know, hands on every piece of pasta, which is inevitable. But what we do need to do as founders is maintain a culture of gastronomy and the love of food and make sure that that love is suffused throughout the business, throughout our people, so that we can keep delivering that amazing experience to customers. How do you define your competitive space? Because to some degree, it's pizza, isn't it? Which is, now, everybody likes pizza with the single exception of my dad, who is the only person on the planet who doesn't like it. why is it that pizza has such an extreme dominance in terms of the delivery market? Compared, one reason is nobody dislikes it. Okay, no, that's no. probably you know, the, the, apart from my dad, <laughs> um, and the fact that nobody dislikes it probably means that um, it's very suitable for communal eating. It's very shareable, yes. etc. Um, but one of the things I think you, you can undoubtedly do is you can open people's eyes to the fact that what they think of as pasta is quite often a fairly poor approximation of what it can be at its very best. And that it's, you know, in other words, it probably has unfortunately ended up as, a, you know, as a little bit of a, you know, the, the stodge mentality. 
well, 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 that's, you know, that's stock up on carbs. Well, that's right. But he, yeah. you know, the same mentality or dilemma even obtains in the pizza world because on one hand you've got, let's say, uh, a relatively bastardized product which you could call a deep, a deep pan Chicago pizza. You know, yeah. frozen pizza from the supermarket, which let's be let's be honest, is is a pretty shocking thing versus a classic pizza, pizza classica napolitana, which is made in one minute in five hundred degree oven with very few ingredients, very high in quality ingredients. For me, you know, I'm not a doctor. I will speak for myself. I'm pretty healthy. That for me is a health food because it has the very best tomatoes, the very best olive oil, best mozzarella. That's an amazing artisan product. So we have the same in, in pasta, and I think we are starting to see, certainly in London for, for the last few years, but all over the UK and even internationally, an understanding that fresh pasta can be a good product and we can have a fresh pasta renaissance. One thing I find really interesting is it's not our top seller, but our fifth best-selling product on Deliveroo is actually our wild boar goo. Now, that's a relatively esoteric product, but yeah. consumers are enjoying it and people are starting to show an openness to, you know, try, you know, slightly less mainstream pasta dishes, which is a wonderful thing. Basically, I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic was that interesting food businesses were able to reach a kind of critical mass, which means they're more likely to survive uh, perhaps afterwards. Um, how do you see the, the market shaking out? generally because i'm intrigued by things like gusto for example where you know when i first experienced gusto i couldn't really see the point that well you know i could just get a recipe from a cookbook and assemble it at waitrose and cook it myself but strangely having experienced gusto i found it pretty sticky i've yeah. probably had one delivery a week for all but four weeks of the last two years or something um do you you, you find the same thing with 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 uh, interestingly with takeaway pasta or delivery pasta that it's much it, it's actually remarkably sticky that once once people discover it they find a place for it in their repertoire i suppose i, th I think so and i think you know one thing that gusto does extremely well is not just focusing on focusing on convenience which is kind of the core usp but also variety so i believe gusto you know is spends a lot of time on npd innovating new skews products, yeah. so that you as a you know because for you to have it once a week that's not going to work if they've only got 10 recipes because you're quickly going no. to become bored and then that reason to hang around is is um removed so we you know we i, I think in takeaways they've also i think done that they've also done the clever thing which is there's an upweighting of what you might call the ethnic foods yes which require uh, you know, a small amount of a specific ingredient, where of course the, the the meal kit really comes into its own. Well, I I think that's it, and you know, I think one of the I wouldn't understand it if you know Gusto is focusing on you know creating recipes based on products that you can find down the road at Sainsbury's. But I have seen you know more international foods coming through Gusto, and you know small amounts of ingredients that are harder to source. You know tamari, gochujang, whatever it is. That if you're in a small town in the middle of Lincolnshire, might not be easy to find. And I think the other thing they're doing well is introducing. And you, you touched on it, introducing more international foods, dishes people haven't heard of. So there is that ability to foster exploration. And actually, in a, in a weird way, that's exactly what Pastor Evangelist is doing as well, because I always say everyone feels like they know Italy. Anyone you meet on the street can tell you something about Italy, probably quite a bit, 
they can't tell you about and and you know they can't tell you about Angola. Maybe they can tell you the capital and maybe identify the flag, but that would stop there. But actually, Italy is much more than Florence or Venice or Milan or Rome. You know, Italy is also the back streets of Basilicata, where you know there are millions and millions of lambs, and you get rich lamb ragu dishes there, or Sardinia or Molise. There are lots of places in Italy that people still don't know about it, and we want to explore and bring to the fore these you know, downtrodden and less loved regions because there is so much to love about them if people would only go beyond the the frontier of Italy. So that's also part of our mission, exploration. Uh, that, that's also true. It's also massively true, by the way, of Italian cheese, which is actually, you know, in many ways more interesting if you get into it than French cheese. It just never seemed to master the export market the way the French cheeses did. Quite. And so if you if you actually delve deep into Italian cheese, it's utterly fantastic. It's a wonderful and there world. Are huge, huge areas of undiscovered interest. Yeah. I mean, I would say for any of your listeners who do happen to live in London or are visiting London to go and visit Italy, Italy, not Italy, Italy in um, Liverpool Street and go to the cheese counter there. And the staff will be so happy to provide you with a million different pieces of cheeses. I can spend hours there tasting Italian cheeses. You know, people talk about pecorino and assume it's one cheese. Pecorino just means ship's cheese. So there is, you know, pecorino romano from Rome, pecorino toscano, pecorino sardo from Sardegna. And each has a different flavor and character. And it's you know, I, I completely agree. The world of Italian cheese is amazing. Just stay away from the maggot cheese of Sardinia, which I won't go into because it's not. not oh, that is actually nice. maggot infested, is it? It is. Yeah, no, I, I think I'll give that a miss. I, yeah, I agree I, with me, you. Me too. <laughs> you know, I, I think one of the most one of the healthiest trends I've seen in my lifetime is actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, there are a lot of negative things that have happened in my lifetime, but one of the great positives is a great trend towards doing simple things really well yes and i you know i always i always said to somebody if you want to start a business one advantage you have is that there's a behavioral science thing which is occasionally called the jack of all trades heuristic Uh which is that we automatically assume not unreasonably that someone who only does one thing does it well Uh it's why you know if you see a fusion restaurant which is you know thai italian restaurant you tend to assume it's Bad. it's a mixture of not very good Thai food and not very good Italian. Yes, we we tend to respect specialism, and so the growth and this implies to everything from bread making to obviously your business. But the idea of doing effectively simple, focused things very, very well. I've always suggested that someone ought to open just a restaurant called Bacon Sandwich, which it's simply it's does. It's builder's tea and a really really good bacon sandwich you probably have two kinds of bacon i'd also bring in a perverse rule which is no ketchup <laughs> just to be a bit uh i guess some, you know sometimes it, it pays to have one of those sort of slightly counterintuitive oddities there's there's a a wonderful uh, uh chips place in ocean city maryland called thrashers yes which is the brand that was copied by five guys when they came to making their own fries and the extraordinary thing about Thrasher's, given that it's in the United States, if you go there and buy a great big bucket of Thrasher's fries, they'll give you salt and they'll give you vinegar, but they won't give you ketchup. Oh, no. Which in America is practically a kind of deviancy. Indeed. Um, but um, is there is there another food or another, do you think there might be another category, which is, I mean, I've always thought 
tragically, they never seemed to go anywhere. There were these various places called soup works and so forth in the 90s, which sought to take soup to a kind of new level. And they don't seem to exist anymore, which was a pity because it always struck me that actually really, really well-made soup is it can be a masterpiece. Yes. And it deserves a starring role when mostly it gets a supporting role. Very well. Um, I don't know if that's true of pasta as well. That actually, you know, that trend of taking something which traditionally has a supporting role and giving it the starring role is just a really, really healthy trend because, you know, it forces us to pay attention to things. And by paying attention to things, we discover new value. In yes. Them. What would you do next? If, or if you're giving a tip to another budding entrepreneur in terms of food innovation, is there a food stuff you suggest they'd try? It's, I mean, it's an interesting question, this idea that, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. Just because you're a jack of all trades doesn't mean you're any worse at the individual trades just because you're doing a few of them. And but we assume. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's fallacious. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, the reason we're not, you know, doing pizza evangelists and Indian evangelists and so on is, is actually in that word evangelism. We are pastor evangelists. Yes. And it becomes, I think, oxymoronic to start evangelizing different things because it's kind of like if you think of evangelism in the religious concept it's kind of deciding yeah, of that you're pantheistic it that doesn't work with evangelism no no, no absolutely having said that within the world of pastor within the religion of pastor we are doing operationally lots of different trades so we don't we don't just you know sell pasta and deliver pasta we also have a pastor school now the staff who work in our pastor school and teach our classes in our events, it's a completely different business, frankly, to a pastor home delivery service, completely different staff, skill sets, uh, and requirements. Um, so in that sense, we are doing multiple trades. And But, you know, from a from a philosophical point of view, we are pastor evangelists and we have to stay focused on that food stuff because, frankly, it's a sprawling enough entity anyway. There are hundreds and hundreds of different pastor yeah. shapes from Italy and hundreds and thousands of dishes that we can be busy evangelizing. What's your favorite pasta shape? I've got to ask you that one. Of the of the obscure ones that we don't know enough about. Uh, okay, so my favorite story pasta is a pasta called Mafaldina or Reginette. It's the, it's the same pasta. Reginette means little queens. And this is a pasta shape that is shaped like ringlets in someone's hair. And the reason for this is because there was an Italian princess called Princess Mafalda of Savoy who stood up to the Germans, the Nazis, uh, during the Second World War. And Hitler hated this princess and had her put in a concentration camp where she died. And after the war, the Italian people commemorated Princess Mafalda by creating a pasta shape resembling her hair. So every time you take a mouthful of Mafaldine or Reginette, it's in honor of Princess Mafalda, who you know refused uh, to send the Jews to Germany's um, Germany's concentration camps, and I think that's beautiful because it's an edible piece of history. Uh, so that's that's the one I'm going to tell you is my favorite today. Oh, that's fantastic! And just finally, by the way, I noticed you were one of the first people, uh, 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 and continuing to be fairly uh, well committed to TikTok. Yes. Um, I also noticed that TikTok, to some extent, was the thing that finally made the air fryer mainstream. Yes. So it clearly has some kind of, um, you know, uh, reasonable previous. Yes. In terms of its ability to start food trends. 
And are you continuing in your enthusiasm for TikTok? Yes. I said to the team two years ago, you know, two years ago, I was 27 years old. And I felt even then that I was too old to understand TikTok because this was really a Gen Z thing. Two years on, I understand TikTok more. I'm still not using it, but I understand the importance. I think it's critical that brands are on there or adopting it. Frankly, if they're not on there already, they're already very, very late. We focus on TikTok a lot. We've kind of got the right formula now. It's I think it's a really interesting platform. It's a fun platform. Yeah. But most importantly, there's a brand new generation of consumers who are coming through and growing up on that platform. Now, we need to monitor, politically speaking, what happens with ByteDance and the situation with you know, the Chinese, uh, Chinese government, because obviously there's overtures in the US to ban TikTok. Who knows what will happen here in the UK? Um, but for now, it's it, it should be part of any marketing team's repertoire and should absolutely be on people's radars. And it does work, does it? It does. Interestingly. It does. I mean, the great thing about TikTok that you don't have on Instagram is is the potential for virality organically. So, you know, some of our videos have, have had three, four million views just because we've got the content right. Now, that's never going to happen on Instagram. And three to four million impressions would cost you a lot of money if you were doing that in paid marketing. So if you can get that organically just by, you know, cottoning onto a trend or, you know, having a creative thought, then you can you can get a lot out, out of it. That's fantastic to know. Well, Finn, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been absolutely eye-opening and indeed probably wallet-opening because <laughs> shortly after this is over, I shall immediately go and place an order, perhaps for that wild boar oh. uh, pasta, which sounds sensational. Fantastic. All that remains for me to say is you've been listening to On Brad with Alf and Rory Sutherland. Uh, if you want to do business with Pasta Evangelists or with any other of the food brands we've featured, contact the ALF Insight team on their website, which is www.alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F-insight.com. Uh, you can also find the link in the episode descriptions on the podcast. This series, as ever, is produced and expertly edited by the wonderful folk at Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe and help our algorithmic performance a little bit by giving us a like as well. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.